You're listening to a History Hook podcast. In this episode, a recording from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The first Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference took place in UCD in 2011, and Tudor and Stuart Ireland organizes a major two-day interdisciplinary conference in August each year, which provides opportunities for scholars at all stages of their career to present and discuss their research on Ireland or the Irish abroad during the Tudor and Stuart periods. You can access an archive of more than 250 podcasts recorded at Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SendLed and Spotify. The 11th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Maynooth University on the 18th and 19th of August 2023. The conference was generously supported by the McMorris Project, the Irish Research Council, the Department of English at Maynooth University, the Arts and Humanities Institute at Maynooth University, and Marsh's Library. In this episode, a conversation about the McMorris Project between Pat Palmer from Maynooth University, who is Principal Investigator on McMorris, and Brendan Kane from the University of Connecticut. It's great to see everybody. It's my great pleasure to be able to sit here and speak with Pat Palmer of Maynooth University about the Project McMorris and about the vision behind it and the team behind it. So thanks, Pat. First of all, I just wanted to say congratulations on the project. Thank you. Yeah. Just thinking about the podcast and why we thought about doing this is that a project like this, it takes many years, it's complex, it's large, it's quite extraordinary. It's a really nice opportunity to have you speak a little bit about the background, about how you imagine people using it, where you think it fits into the sort of broader intellectual milieu of the early modern world. So first of all, Tell us a little bit about the name. Why Mac Morris? Mac Morris, several names, really. It's an anti-name first. There's a kind of, obviously, you're playing with the idea of Shakespeare's character, his stage Irishman, Mac Morris, who, who's in Henry V. And he comes on, essentially, I saw a production of it in the RSC in 2016. And he, comes, he came on in that one with kind of landmines and grenades strapped to him. And pretty well, you know, smoke coming out his ears and, and guns and, and knives and all of this kind of stuff hanging off him. So he is the archetypal stage Irishman. And he, he gets very little to say in the play. Basically, he, he says, there's throats to be cut. Um, so he's this kind of apotheosis of Irish violence. But he also says, he asks a really interesting question, two interesting questions. He said, what is my nation? And then he said, who speaks of my nation? And that question of who speaks of my nation is really interesting because, alarmingly, Mac Morris has been allowed to speak. Um, I don't know. I should have done a survey of how many articles, when they want to talk about early modern <coughs> Ireland, it's back to Mac Morris again. Most recently in The Globe and Race, Shakespeare and Race, when they want to talk about Ireland, it is Mac Morris again, with no kind of countervailing anything. So he's our first person because he's the kind of problematic of Anglophone writing about Ireland. But then, of course, why does Shakespeare pick the name Mac Morris? He picks the name Mac Morris because there are a lot of Mac Morrises operating in Ireland in the period. Um, and so you have somebody like James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, um, who leads a kind of papal force of um, counterinsurgencies into Ireland in 1580, who's a really interesting character, whose backstory is very different to this kind of grenade-saturated Captain Mac Morris, because he's in Spain, he's dealing with papal delegates, he's dealing with kings of Portugal and Spain, he's back in Bordeaux, he's 
coming and going between Ireland and a continent to which it's richly connected. So that's a very different notion of MacMorris. And then we have, as a Kerry woman, we have a Kerry MacMorris, um, the MacMorrises of Kerry, and who have just this wonderfully rich court of, of poets attached to them um, and speak of a very different world. So I, the name then, I think, allows us to bring together that central aim of the MacMorris project, which is to see if we can go beyond an Anglophone understanding of early modern Ireland and find out who these other people are with their links to the continent, with their links to Gaelic culture and so forth. So I think this is a good moment to ask you a little bit about the broader vision then of the project. What led you to do it? What did you want to come out of it? Sometimes I think it's it's a polemic that became a digital humanities project. Uh, for for years and years and years, I had been writing foolish and slightly enraged articles about why does everybody refuse to engage with early modern Ireland in its totality? So it's in its polyphony, in its kind of a unified picture of early modern Ireland. The, the pattern has been that, for example, if if you're an English scholar and you know a literary historian you the picture of Ireland that we get is Edmund Spencer John Bale the Barnabys Barnaby Rich Barnaby Ghoul and these Googe and these people give us a picture that is obviously a colonial picture of early modern Ireland extraordinarily incomplete and yet that's the picture that we get so how do we get beyond that obviously you know Getting beyond it often means going to the English state papers. So yet again, you're getting this distorted picture of, of early modern Ireland. If I stick with our Fitzmorrises for a minute, the Mac Morrises of Kerry, I think it's Barnaby Rich describes Porikin Mokmudish going back to Kerry after being brought up at the court. And he goes back to the court in North Kerry from the court in Hampton Court. And he's described by Barnaby Rich as going back and putting on his Irish rags, he says. Um, And he says, an ape, though he be clothed in cloth of gold, is still an ape. So here we have this man who just disappears off into the bogs with him, and we have no more idea of what world he goes back to and what world is so compelling to him that he can leave Hampton Court and want to spend the rest of his life defending somewhere in North Kerry. Um, but of course, there is another poem that's, you know, another writer talking to him, Donal Machdaira Machbrudde, who writes a really exquisite poem to him, Nidul Korder er Krech Nevil, which is an evocation of the court at Lestole, the kind of cuckoo um, sounding court of Lestole. And also just this exquisite picture of the feel, of swimming in the feel, of hunting stag in the mountain, and a very complete world. So this is the world it's, that is so out of our sight if we're just looking at the English language sources. So it was coming up against that obduracy that the English text can bring us so far, but absolutely no further. And also a kind of exasperation with writers who consistently pay homage in the first two pages of their works to, of course, we have to take, or, you know, if we're talking about early modern Ireland, we need to think about Gaelic sources. I, however, am now going to ignore them for the whole rest of this volume. We have to give them, you know, force them to see that there is something beyond this. But so that was the vision, I guess, of compel people 
to acknowledge it. If they want, if they want to ignore it, I'm hoping that I'll have given enough, or the project will have given enough resources for the, the brilliant young scholars that are out there to work with that. So maybe, you know, you can bring certain horses to the well and they just ain't going to drink. But that a new generation of scholars who will take it as granted that you can't talk about early modern Ireland without talking about the totality of its communities and its languages, including languages that come in like Spanish. So let me ask you then a little bit about the format or the mode that you chose, uh, digital humanities. And I mean, first of all, I'll ask you, was it a difficult pitch to make? Because I mean, on the one hand, you've just described uh, an academic field that is resistant in many ways to the multilinguality of the, of the subject. And you've also described a project that is really polemical. So potentially some problems with the pitch. How did you make the pitch? Was it easy to yeah, convince? I, that's really difficult. I mean, one of the hardest people to convince about this was myself. I had an old friend of mine from York, a colleague um, from York in the early 2000s, was introducing me in Cambridge last year. And he milked such hilarity out of the fact that I, of all people in the world, would be involved in a digital humanities project. Um, so that I had to be convinced, first of all. And I think what was happening was that I was writing these solitary articles, which were increasingly rebarbative and probably earning me a reputation as a very grumpy and increasingly <laughs> grumpy old lady as, as it just went on and on. And then I was trying to kind of counter this completely hegemonic Anglo um, inflection by, in, in the kind of traditional way, you know, writing a monograph. Severed head and the grafted tongue is about violence. It's about physical violence, but it's also about cultural violence um, and about the excision, really, the lopping off of that Irish language tradition in accounts of things. But what was I doing? I was writing like whole chapters on Spencer's Fairy Queen and I was doing it in a kind of negative way. I was taking down his insistence that it was Irish barbarity when he was demonstrating, you know, a, a, an approval for English barbarity, which, in, in, you know, in the record is much more prevalent, in fact. And then I would, I, I wrote what was, I think, actually called a coda, where I talk about two or three bardic poems that are very eloquent elegies to patrons who have had their heads cut off. But it's just like this tiny little weak tail at the end. And it's not wagging any dog, this tail. It's just one that is very easy to step over. So I realised that just doing this wasn't going to cut the mustard, making that solitary argument, that it had to be a demonstration, so that I needed to move from polemic to data. And so that in the 2010s, I became this person who... I opened a file called MacMorris in about... 2011, 2012. Yeah, it's still on the computer and it's got very big, let me tell you, in the subsequent years. But what I was doing was coming up with these lists and lists of people who didn't seem to be anywhere in the account of early modern Ireland. So I remember kind of a really important moment was reading Andrew Hatfield's Edmund Spencer, a biography. And there I was Coming, I mean, and this is how paper-based I was with my little pencil making notes on the side and then typing up long lists of everybody that Spencer knew in Ireland. And it turns out Spencer knew a whole lot of English people in Ireland. And 
then kind of lurking in the woods in the long grass were people in mantles with glibs over their heads. But they didn't get into the index, obviously. Um, or a few of them did. Um, but So I had these long lists. And then I was having these kind of counter lists of the people who were... So this was really not helpful. You know, what was I going to do with these long lists? And at the same time, by then I was in King's College London, which had a collaboration with the University of North Carolina. And I had the most productive conversations with David Baker because David kept saying to me, Pat, this needs to be a digital humanities project. And I said, David. Um, and, but he kept going. And I was just kind of, I ran out of ways of rolling my eyes, basically. Um, and then David got a small grant from the University of North Carolina to do something with my long lists. And I mean, it, it was kind of, eye-opening to me that you could just use data in this way to make a case so overwhelmingly. So you're talking about the difficulty of persuading people. The pe people were trying to persuade me. And at the same time, my other collaboration was with Willie Maley. And Willie is a kind of one-man dictionary or supplementary dictionary of Irish biography. So Willie had been collecting all of these people who are not in the dictionary of Irish biography, which is, of course, quite a lot of people. Um, so... He kept sending links, our little write-ups about more and more people, um, people like Petruccio Ubaldini. And I was thinking, oh, wow, there's just so many other things that need to go. So that was it. I mean, this is a very long answer and is not beginning to approach the thing. I suppose we have to throw into the mix Brexit. Um, and that production that I talked about of the the RSC's production of Henry V, where, um, you know, you, you think we've been doing this scholarship, this deconstructing colonial images and representations of the other, you know, since the 80s now. And here we have Captain Mac Morris, as I have described, Jamie the Scotsman, all of his speech was taken from him. He basically was made to sound like a Scotsman. And this is what a Scotsman sounds like. It's... So every time he came on, even before he opened his mouth, and only to say, you know, sounds like that, people were falling around laughing. When Mac Morris came on, they couldn't wait for the fun. When the French came on, they couldn't wait to hate them. And I, I walked out of the theatre that night. It was early April 2016, the friend of mine. And I said to her, Brexit is going to pass. Because there was such a kind of happy nationalism in the huge theatre of the Barbican that night. So I thought, I'm, I need to start thinking about this because this is not going to be a very kind and welcoming place for people who want to talk about, you know, decolonizing um, notions of early modern Ireland. So I came back to Ireland. And the only people I then had to persuade, basically, was the Irish Research Council, to whom I am infinitely grateful for their support. Um, and in that sense, collaborations had already happened. You might know that I was collaborating with one Brendan Kane, for example, <laughs> who gave me invaluable advice at early stages. So, and that collaboration, those collaborations, I, I carried into the project, but it was convincing the IRC, really, and, and those readers who, who, to whom I'm also grateful. I wanted to ask you uh, about... I mean, in certain ways, I, mean, I suppose this is a crude division thinking about the, the website, but that distinction between raw data, like names of people, descriptions of people, man in mantle number four, 
um, and cultural production, because cultural production is such a critical part of the, of the site. And what do you see the relationship there between, I mean, not only sort of those two kind of categories of uh, historical source, um, but the way in which they operate together on the website? One of the things we, we had to do initially was we had to expand the cast list because we were starting from those indices, those indexes in things like Edmund Spencer, a biography, which hardly lists any Irish people. So we first of all had to say, insist on repopulating Ireland with figures, Old English, Gaelic Irish, but also Spanish, Italian, French, when we could find them, strangely difficult to find, and, and others. So the biographical thing is, is really important as part of that. But of course, we're interested in them, not in terms of creating a census of early modern Ireland, because that's not what we're doing, but of bringing in other cultural actors. So they have to be there in the first place so that we can see their interactions. I mean, it's, perhaps it's, it might be useful at this stage to talk about the, the stages that you'd be working through in accessing the website. So first of all, there is that biographical element where we have this list of... It's not just everybody who is a significant cultural actor in the sense of producing work, producing poetry, say, but also those who were changing the weather for cultural actors. So for people, you know, somebody who chops off a patron's head is a pretty significant cultural actor. But we're also going for kind of cultural artisans, so the, the kind of artisans of conquest, people like cartographers, people like builders of fortifications. Um, so it was building up that in the entire um, cast list of those who were involved in, in producing culture, but also in producing this catastrophic transformation in the possibilities of producing a Gaelic, a, you know, a sustained and continuing Gaelic culture. So that, that's the first element. The, and we also wanted then, of course, because we kept coming up with more and more new ideas, we, we kept going after other people who weren't in the record. So we have somebody, very pleasingly, um, who, who's simply um, a fisherman, that he's, he's rowing his curragh in from an island off the coast of Clare. We have a lot of women because they were completely underrepresented. And interestingly, a huge number of those women were brought in from another one of our really important collaborators, which is the Irish Party Poetry <coughs> Database. And Dr. Deirdre Nihorig, who is a postdoctoral researcher on the project, scraped through all of that and just found an astonishing number of women who were Gaelic women who were important cultural players as patrons, for example, or mentioned in penultimate quatrains in, in bardic poetry. So suddenly we had, a, a by bringing in a lot of women, you're bringing in a lot of cultural players that are being ignored in other cases. So this is a... a a biographical reference that would be useful to people in lots of different fields, not necessarily people with our kind of cultural obsession. So now we have all of the players, we have all of the poets in, in terms of all of the Gaelic poets, for example, including women poets. And, and so if you're now to kind of... So if you look for a writer in, in our database, we make life difficult 
for those who would like to apply a filter which says, show me only Edmund Spencer and his mates. Um, and so in pour all of the Gaelic poets as well. And then you're going, and if you kind of defiantly wish to only find English poets in this, well, you're going to have to walk through quite a lot of O'Brothers and, you know, um, Max and O's um, to, to do so. So that, that's the first thing. We have then all of those people lined up. The next thing is to see how they interact with each other. So the second phase, we needed that huge database so that we could do a network, show the networks that everybody had. So anybody who's in our database, in, in some cases, that fisherman, Dermot the fisher off the coast of Clare, we don't know who he talked to, but most other people have got somebody that they're linked with. They've written a letter to, or they've dedicated a poem to, or they've married somebody. And so we can, we can see the, the network, particularly interesting when we look at something like the network of Gaelic poets and their patrons, for example. So we can have, have that huge, huge network, especially for poets who are writing for several different patrons. That's the immediate first degree connection. But if we expand outwards from that and show the kind of friends of a friend, the second degree, then suddenly a Gaelic poet who seems to be immured in this very narrow Gaelic world, one Gaelic poet, one patron, that patron is now bringing in so many others because that patron is engaged in lots of different fields, is engaged militarily, perhaps politically, is travelling and so forth. So very, very quickly our seemingly, but only seemingly, isolated Gaelic poet is just at this very small degree of remove from English Lord Deputies, but also, interestingly, English language poets, but also, of course, Spanish captains and so forth. So I think that's going to be very exciting for people to wander around in and see those kind of connections. Some, I mean, we can see definite connections, but also there are these kind of could, could that have been? It forces us always into, you will never go into the second degree without moving into multiplicity, without moving into linguistic plurality. You're going to have to, to cross a cultural or linguistic boundary as you move into that second degree. So we also have that for works, by the way, because works are also kind of part of a network of exchange and dedication and patronage and so forth. Um, so we've everybody then lined up. So our next thing then is to get going on, well, what did they write? And bringing in the, um, the material that was so absent, is so absent so often in the telling of early modern Ireland. And here we've you know, been fortunate to have not one but two um, wonderful um, experts in classical Irish. I've, I've mentioned Deirdre and also Dr. Phil Mahroil, who came in the second half of the project. Um, and they have done Trojan work of editing um, bardic poetry, so much of which exists um, but is still unedited. Um, and making that available is incredibly important. So the first thing is they edited some of these works in the traditional way, you know, producing very scholarly editions for Celtica, Asia, and so forth. Phil edited sections of and translated hitherto completely unedited um, poems for the deep map, of which I'll talk later. 
But that means that there's a whole lot of material that is available nowhere else except on the deep map if you want to access bardic poetry. And then, of course, in our continuing relationship with Leiv, a lot of the works, a lot of work was done preparing poems, several quatrains of poems for Leiv, and there's a kind of little Mac Morris enclave on the Leiv site. So in that sense, that's where the cultural, finally, now we get down to that element where you are not just being told there are lots of people writing in other languages, um, but also where you're beginning to see the works and accessing the works. And even, you know, the works that we haven't directly on the website, because it can only be a tiny fraction, really. But every mention of a Gaelic poet will bring you back out again to the Irish poetry, party poetry database and you have a hyperlink to the poem. So you're constantly being sent back out into the primary text, into the work themselves. Just a quick question about the language. There's also an Irish language yeah. version of the site. And I wonder if you could say a quick word, because up to this point, we've been talking about <clears throat> scholarship of a historical period. Mm. But now coming back to perhaps a broader definition of the polemic, tell us a little bit more about that decision and where that fits into the vision. It seemed entirely natural and happily it was something that was supported and advocated from the start by by Deirdre and enabled by Deirdre and Phil who has been doing untold amount of um, translation into the night until, you know, the the launch itself uh, where we kept changing and making more videos and doing all kinds of things like that. So it it was really, really important for us that it was accessible because we, we really wanted to be available to Irish language scholars who, of course, know this stuff because it's kind of... They must sometimes listen to me and just think, what planet am I living on? Of course we know there is Irish language material. Of course we know that there's this extraordinarily rich heritage of, our, of Irish material from early modern period. So we don't want them to be going into a website that's treating them as if, you know... So the, the video, for example, that Phil made for that website is about moving on. It's not kind of luring people in as it has to be in the English language website where you're saying guess what? There's actually Irish language stuff from early modern Ireland. In this case, you know all of that in the Irish language thing. So now let's go and use it in a different way. So um, I think that's really the, it's not just polemical. It's to, because it's really, I mean, I remember speaking to Damien McManus when I came back from the UK and I said I was thinking of this project, of putting in for a project like this. And, you know, he gave it his blessing, but he said, you'll understand that there are very few labourers in this field. And I feel my job is to go back down into the coal mine and dig out a few more poems um, in my career. And so that you understand that the obligation of Gaelic scholars, classical Irish scholars, is to do the work of recovery, editing and, and making the material available. But I also want a conversation. And I think one of the riches of the project is what happens when that you can have these conversations with scholars in classical Irish, because that's really explosive. And that's where the, I think the breakthroughs, the intellectual breakthroughs will happen. So it's in that sense, perhaps polemical as well, because it's about let's keep talking 
even after the project is over. Let's hope that the classical Irish scholars keep talking to us. Just let me add to the shout out to Deirdre and Phil, who do do really extraordinary work. Uh, they work with me on Lave, and uh, I've been I've learned a vast amount. And uh, and Emmett um, Barra involved in this connection as well, and Oma Karg. So it's really been a wonderful way of bringing people together. Um, we are going to open it up to the floor, but I wanted to ask, in addition to you speaking a little bit more about the deep map and any other thing about the site that you think might be of interest to people that they may not obviously see going through it on their own, right? People who are behind projects like these just have a sense for the thing, right, that might not be obvious to users. So if there's anything you'd like to say about that. But the world, the ecosystem of digital humanities is both an exciting one, but it's also a problematic one. And, um, and it's a complex one. You're beholden to external funders. What happens when the initial funding disappears? How do you work with collaborators? Again, you know, we've heard about a number of the people with whom you've worked who are doing fantastic work. But how does that collaborative work or collaborative work that goes into non-traditional outputs, to mm. use the term, how does that work in terms of their own professional development? And how do, you, how do you manage that? How do you think about that as somebody who's directing a project like this? Yeah, there's so many questions in that. Let me just deal with the deep map first, because the deep map is also part of the polemic, I think, because it's easy to for a scholar to extract the people they're interested in. So have that list of Spencer's Irish neighbours, which actually is all about his English collaborators. It's easy to do that if you're thinking abstractly about a writer. It's impossible to do it if you're thinking spatially, if you're thinking concretely. So the deep map was always central to my vision of this. That is the sense that these people are living, these people being the incoming settlers, are living cheek by jowl with the Old English, with the Gaelic Irish. And that spatial contiguity is really, really important. So, you know, while you might be able to think about Spencer's network as just a group of English people, when you actually see that he's squeezed in between Lord Roach and Lord Barry, and that he's just across the Blackwater River from where um, one of the Angus Fionn O'Dolly that uh, Deirdre has pluralised so alarmingly in the last few days... Um, when you realise that he's in this milieu where he's, he's having his law battles with Roach and goodness knows the kind of intertext, suddenly you begin to see intertextualities in, in the poems of Angus Fionn in his writings for um, a Corrie Moore, for example, that, that link with the Fairy Queen. Um, it becomes a completely different thing. So spatialising it, putting people down on the map is really important. So that's what we did with a case study of the province of Munster, um, where we have um, 197 sites. And these sites are where, where somebody has written from. But in most cases, more than one person has written from. And so from the same site, you can have a bardic poem written. But you can also have an account of the slaughter of the ward of that castle. Uh, and you can also have the report of a Spanish captain who passes by later. And so you're getting this layered plurality of perspectives that I think is really important. So anybody looking at the deep map who wants to find Spencer, and we were wicked when it came to finding Spencer on the deep map. So you go into Kilcolman and you don't find a single extract from 
the Fairy Queen, which you, you do find Ochiohosa's Furlam on Ihadza, the A. So they go, they're going to despair. And they're going to despair further when they realise that there is a quote from the Fairy Queen, but it's buried all over Munster. And they're going to have to click on everything and they're going to have to meet a lot of bardic poems on their way. And so there is this kind of physical insistence on contiguity. And then what, what kind of a society we're talking about. And it's also, of course, it has an element of change over time because something that can be celebrating, something, that beautiful account, for example, of um, Le Stole Castle can be replaced by an account of the destruction of the castle, for example. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is accessing the site. And Well, we've given a lot of... Um, We've made a lot of videos to give people guidance to it. And I think a lot of it is going to be about playing around. It's, I've been having lovely conversations this morning with people who found out things that I didn't even know you could find on the site or that you could be interested in. Um, so that's really, it's, it's going to be about getting their attention for long enough to let them fall into the rabbit hole that it is, um, where you'll be just clicking from link to link to link. But I think that the main thing is that this is a resource for a kind of multitudinous, complex, rich Ireland, but an Ireland that is also centrally a player in a European theatre, not just a European theatre of war, but also, I mean, one of the most interesting things for me, one of those kind of lovely moments of discovery, I was translating some Spanish stuff, and and also an Italian text. And in both cases, they just put in a small boat into um, uh, Ilon d'Arvre, for example, into Cape Clear to somewhere on, in Yvron. And in each case, they, they come back with an interpreter, a, a Spanish interpreter. So that notion, you know, that Kerry people have, oh, anyone who's dark-skinned is because we were interacting with the Spaniards for forever. Um, there must be some truth in that, that you can just put into Valencia Harbour and ask around, is there anyone here who speaks Spanish? And, and you come back with him on the boat. So that, those kind of connections are really interesting. And so, you know, whatever your interest is, I'm hoping that it'll be piqued by that. That piques my interest. It, nobody else might be interested in it. But other people will have other... I mean, I think there, for an eco-critical thing, I could take over the podcast at this stage talking about that, but I'll just have it kind of dot, dot, dot. Okay, so digital humanities. Um, the digital humanities, it's, I mean, there's so many things about it. Uh, one is, it's, it's just magical in terms of people coming together and that kind of hive mind. The collaboration has been a joy throughout. Um, but also there's this question of, you know, so universities valorise digital humanities. Grant institutions seem to valorise the digital humanities. It's something that's very visible. You produce something. But then what do you produce? Is that valorised? Who is the author of a website, for example? Is an author, is, is a website a monograph? Whose monograph is it? Is it the PI? That would be disgraceful. Uh, so that you have a whole lot of early career researchers who are producing so in a way, they're contributing to somebody else's imaginative and intellectual baby. Um, and, and they're doing so at a time where older scholars like me were writing their first book in a tenured, we didn't even have that word, 
position at that stage. So I think there is a, a, a very serious problem about that. And then I think there is also a kind of coercive thing that university management can only understand, in a sense, digital humanities. And so their metrics are very devoted to measuring it. And so colleagues who are not involved in the digital humanities, this is not my personal experience in Maynooth where everybody has been immensely supportive, but I know that in other places you're kind of seen as the enemy within because you're going down this neoliberal route. So that also is problematic. So the whole, I mean, while this is a marvellous site, the whole experience has been joyous, it, ha- it is a problem um, that, that it's structured in such a way that disadvantages early, it gives great opportunities to early career researchers, but also disadvantages them. So let's open up the floor for questions. I'm Mary-Louise Coulihan. I'm Professor of English at the University of Galway. Um, firstly, congratulations to you and the McMorris team on a fantastic resource. Um, and I suppose my question is about kind of the next stages, you know, how the resource might... It has potential, I think, to transform these discussions in the ways that you've outlined already, Pat. Um, and I suppose the question really is directed to both yourself and Brendan about translation and attitudes to translation. And I suppose really what I want to tease out there is a kind of a scholarly view of editing, for example, Irish language or English language texts um, that takes a kind of a a purist approach to the language. Um, And the ways in which both of you have sought to enable people who don't have those that expertise in a language Um, and to come back to where you started at the beginning Pat that whole question of the wider sphere of early modern cultural studies and that the danger that people might kind of say well McMorris does that that's that little bit over there someone's doing it it's Pat Palmer we can ignore it and trying to force that conversation upon that wider audience I suppose and the question really is about how does that feed into where are we at in our attitudes to the scholarly use of translation and making making people feel enabled they might have a smattering of a language or they might have none of the language, yet enabling them to feel that they can and should engage with translation and that it is credible in a scholarly way to use translation, even though one may not be in accordance with purist kind of views of the language or the culture And I suppose that applies to Irish, English or any other language of the early modern period too. Thanks. So many questions in that. Sorry. Um, I mean, the future of Mac Morris is a really interesting one because we're back to structures again. So it's, we have two weeks to run in the Mac Morris project and we have just launched the website. We never do funders give you money to actually launch the thing, to go on the roadshow that's really needed now, to tell people about it. So we're, we're trying to make the website do all the work that we could do much more ably if we went off to the Do Hallow Historical Society, you know, if we could spread across the country and just do these things. Um, one of the ways that we've tried to give it some kind of future is uh, we in our resource section, we have a lot of case studies to help third level students, but we've also designed, and, and a shout out here to the SPUR programme in Maynooth, which gives summer internships to second year students which is a stupendous um, intern this year Emma, Emma Cooling who came up with these packs and has, has a beautiful one for transition year students so we're hoping that but again you'd want to be going to the Department of Education you'd want to be pushing um, this out in that way so that's that whole question of future 
publications obviously come into it and all of that. But the, I absolutely get your bigger question, which is about how does this, you know, there is a defensiveness also about people. If you're saying, you know, I began to be aware in certainly in a UK context that I, I was this kind of siren voice that seemed to be calling people out and I'd never meant to. Well, you, you know, you can't expect us to be doing Irish or something like that. And it's very easy then to kind of have one reference citation in a, the early pages and then ignore it completely. I think one of the really wonderful things about um, the project has been the collaboration and the support we've had from classical Irish scholars. I've obviously mentioned Deirdre and Phil, but also... Um, you know, Michal Hoyne was on our board, Owen McCorrig was on our board, Owen O'Reilly is on our board. And I think that's just incredibly important because they showed an openness. You know, they said, we know what we're doing, which is we're textual scholars, we're producing the editions, but we do want people to play with them as well. And and the more people who are, and as long as there is that receptiveness, I just felt very humbled by that. And immensely appreciative of it. Brendan, you might have. Yeah, I mean, working in translation is wonderful, but there's a couple of things about it. One is so much material is still untranslated, so it's problematic. Uh, but the other thing, too, is some of the things that are translated are, are curious. I mean, they're historical phenomenon in and of themselves. If, I mean, Eleanor not, you know, forgot more Irish than I'll ever know. But, you know, there's a really interesting way in which she translates. And, you know, it's really a product of the time. And so people need to be playing playing with it. And, you know, the thing about Lave, as you may know, is that we are not in the business of providing translations for people. We're in the business of trying to provide uh, really kind of deeply broken down and explained selections for people in order to encourage them to learn more because we want to live in a world in which people are playing around and they're doing their own translations and then they're thinking about those translations in relationship to the kinds of, well, putting them within the milieu which is described in, uh, in Mick Morris. And, but we're also quite interested in people discussing those sources in the modern iteration of the language. And, the, you know, the curious thing about early modern Irish is there's no dictionary, grammar, or guide, or there hasn't been, and therefore that's why we put it together. Uh, so, I mean, not only do we think, uh, I mean, it just sounds funny to speak in the plural. I think I speak for everybody on, on LAEV, um, which is kind of a, which is a collective in any case. But, uh, you know, we think it's important to be working on the language in the modern iteration for a whole variety of reasons, but not the least of which because we think it is an aspect of bringing some historical empathy and respect to the subject that we study. Other questions from the floor? Don't be shy. Hi. Um, thank you for such a, a wonderful recording, I suppose. Um, my name's uh, Annie, Annie Kabaza. I'm a PhD student at UCD. Um, this is really a question about interconnectivity, sort of between Ireland and continental Europe, which... I have just found is something that really opens up the second you start focusing on Ireland, you get all these European things popping in. And I'm just uh, curious about that, really. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how sort of connections between Ireland and Europe popped up. And uh, 
this might be a bit weird, especially those not involving England, especially not mitigate. You know, is there sort of ways in which Ireland and Europe were independently connected? I suppose. Yeah, I, I certainly think that economic ties are huge. So that when you're looking at something like the southwest coast of Ireland, where Spanish definitely is, we now can see the second language is so interesting, but also that the lords of these places are extremely wealthy, not by fishing themselves, but by, you know, having fishing licenses. So when the Spanish arrive, uh, it's not some kind of strange armada that has washed in. It's familiar people who have washed in. And I think it's really striking, and you'll notice it on the Spanish extracts in the deep map, is how differently they're appraising Ireland, how how differently they're appraising the hospitality they receive, the food even, they receive uh, the loyalty, um, etc., of of the of the people they're engaging with, so that those ties, I think, are, are really not a kind of artifice of you know Miletian thinking or something like that, but they seem to be um, very profound. I think what's what's very nice as well is in some of the often in the elegies, but not always just in the elegies for the lords of the, the southwest coast, is how the sea comes into play and how sailing and, you know, poems just about being on the water, uh, you know, the the kind of joy of being in the water, the joy of having a responsive boat, the, the sense of craft in its making and its endurance of the waves and so forth. So I, I really loved that element in, in the project of discovering not just, you know, somebody in Ireland and somebody in Galicia, but the sense of movement between them. And that kind of, that blue space, which is filled in all of the maps, only with English ships uh, kitted out, you know, in the flag of St. George, is actually a place of encounter and engagement and and a real place in itself. Uh, Hi, thank you both so much. Uh, Andrew Levy, PhD student at the University of Galway. Um, As problematic as Spencer is, he seems to be in a great catalyst for this project, in a way. And I'm just wondering, are there any other um, problematic figures, perhaps, in the other provinces that would lead to a similar project, maybe mapping the rest of Ireland, or if there's a possible future around that at this time? Thanks. That's a terrific question, Andrew. Um, You're asking a monster woman. So, uh, poor... Phil was always totally frustrated as an Ulster man um, <laughs> at this. So it's, it's really up to Phil now to come up with a, a catalytic <laughs> figure of that nature. Um, I think we're incredibly fortunate in, in being able to pivot, use, uh, use, and I hope not abuse Spencer, who is a great poet and who is fascinating, um, to, as a way of leaping off in. I, there isn't such a significant figure anywhere else. So uh, and also everybody else seems somehow more mobile so that Barnaby Rich is writing, you know, so extensively across so many years in Ireland, but he's very hard to locate. He's kind of on campaign all of the time. He pops up in different places. I think the figure of, uh, I mean, the only other really productive figure that I think w- would be helpful in that respect is, oddly enough, Sir Henry Sidney. Because his letters and his accounts of you know his journal um, give us he's moving through the country and 
the, the castles that he's burning, for example, you know, when he sweeps through Munster at one stage, uh, you're going, oh my God, I hope so-and-so didn't get hurt. I, oh, I hope so-and-so didn't get, or that, you know, Duiner didn't, or that's probably where he did get burned, or whatever. <laughs> so it, it, in that sense of a back and front, recto verso, I think he's an interesting figure. But it's a great question, and, um, you know, the rollout nationwide of Mac Morris would be a really... You know, that, that in itself would be a great conversation to have. Well, with that said, I think it just remains uh, to me to thank you, Pat, to thank everyone for being here and to wish great success for the project and all the team that took part in making it thank happen. Thank you so much, Brandy. It's been really interesting to reflect, even at this too short distance. Um, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. For more information on the conference, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.